Hey, y'all. I'm really excited to share this episode because it's centered around what might be the greatest campfire story I've ever experienced. If you've been listening to this show, you know I love stories and am a big believer in their importance because not only is storytelling old as culture itself, but might be the root of all culture. All the same, there are some places where spinning yarns just seems to come more naturally than others, and am honored to take you to one such place today. I doubt you've been, and for that matter, probably haven't even heard of it, but one of the principal arguments of this series isn't just that art can be found everywhere, but that some of the best art and artists come from places that don't always get the most attention. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. Before we get started, seeing as that today's episode features some truly terrific stories, it seems like a great moment to tell you about one of my favorite storytellers, Charlie Connolly, and his show, Coastal Stories. An accomplished UK-based writer, in each episode, Charlie shares tales from history about people and their interactions with the sea. Yeah, he talks about sailors and shipwrecks, but also lighthouses, pleasure piers, cockle gatherers, and even a guy named Dando the Oyster Eater. Read with Charlie's expert narration over the sounds of waves recorded near his home on the shores of Kent, more than brine-encrusted anecdotes, Coastal Stories celebrates the joys, follies, and tiny acts of heroism and kindness that illuminate the human experience. It's also one of the most soothing listens I've ever encountered, and urge you to find Coastal Stories wherever you get your podcasts. And now, let's get on with the show. Well, so this is an amazing, uh, an amazing project. I mean, would it, would you say it would have been safe to describe Oakville as a ghost town when you first got here? It was a ghost town, and in fact, to some people, it still is because they can come here and they see things and they hear things. Uh, ben, who's been with me for twelve years, he sees, he's seen ghosts, he's heard them. I never have, but he has, and a lot of other people that have come through here. And I think if you come here with the mindset that you're going to see and hear, you do. Ben, ben has an old story that he was told when he was a kid uh, growing up, but if a ghost is going past you and it, he turns around and looks at you, that that's where you dig and you find gold. Well, one day I come here and there's holes everywhere. I, I asked Ben, how many times did that ghost stop? And uh, I said, you better cover those holes before somebody falls in there. And they're, they're the ones that are going to get the gold because they're going to sue me. Yeah. <laughs> so, The village of Oakville sits hidden in plain sight just a few yards off I-37 in Live Oak County, roughly midway between Corpus and San Antonio. Founded in 1856 by a hardy group of Irish settlers, at its zenith, this one-time stagecoach station boasted a population of 400, claimed seven saloons, and was a notorious site of brutal frontier justice. Standing in view of the old jailhouse, a two-storied 1886 building of gray sandstone, this town's tall, silver-haired owner, Albert Davila, tells me of its history, and in hearing of the blood that was spilt here, can see why ghosts may very well haunt these grounds. Uh, it has got a lot of character. It's got a lot of history. The uh, Texas Rangers were here. They, they tried them, and, and the ones that were guilty, uh, I'm not sure they were all guilty, but they hung them. 
Yeah, and then, and then across the uh, road here, we have a, uh, a cemetery, and so they would take them from here to the cemetery. There's a bunch of unmarked graves there. They wouldn't even waste the time to write their name, and they just uh, lay them to rest back there. This all came to an end not long after the shrewd cattleman George West snatched Oakville's title of county seat by muscling the railroad through his namesake town 12 miles down the road. By the time Albert purchased this land, apart from Van's Barbecue on the frontage road, things had pretty much dried up. But having retrieved and restored the post office, depot, mercantile, and a few old homesteads, Mr. Davila has essentially built an old western square from scratch. And today... Oakville is a wonder to behold. Yet while things might feel a bit more civilized around these parts today, much of the country that surrounds here remains a little wild. Everything will bite you or sting you, but it's a beautiful, beautiful place. I mean, just like we were watching the sunset, uh, it's, it's, it can be just such a soft, beautiful place too. The Nueces Strip isn't a region that arrests its visitors immediately. It's isolated, the land is tough, flat, brushy, and during the summer, one could almost forgive General Sheridan for having said, if I owned hell in Texas, I'd rent out Texas and move to hell. But its ranches, red sunsets, and authentic spirit possess a peculiar mystery that gradually wins you over, and it's a place that Mary Margaret Campbell is honored to hang her hat. I was born in Alice, Texas. Um... When I was born, my father was attending college at Sol Ross State University and was on the rodeo team. He was a calf roper. And I was, as I said, I was born in Alice, but the night I was born, my father competed in Abilene at the college rodeo, borrowed a car, and drove all the way from Abilene after he roped to get to, to Alice. And I had been born a little after midnight, so he, he was, got there a few hours after I was born. I just it's home to me. My uh, ancestors go back to the 1850s on on my dad's side in South Texas, and it's just it's home. It's what's familiar. It's just where I belong. A former teacher and oil and gas landman, considering the time she dedicates to historic preservation and civic engagement, it would feel grossly inappropriate to call her retired. We're chatting under the shade of a mesquite tree outside Albert's main house, and as this is my first visit, she's proud to tell me that, due in part to her efforts, nearby George West was officially proclaimed the storytelling capital of Texas. Turns out, oral traditions are big around here, and when I ask local rancher John Ed James why this might be, he says he thinks it's because where we are is an important juncture. People call this area kind of the crossroads to to true deep South Texas in the valley. I think you have a, you have a lot of different influences in this area from, from the, the Mexican population and the Germans and the Irish, and it's really a melting pot. And, I, you know, I, you know it's, there's, there's all kinds of different people in this area maybe, and maybe that has something to do with it. I'm not sure, though. There's, there's, there's been storytelling going on for years. I, um, there's several in the area, you know, and a lot of times it happens around a campfire after a few beers or a bottle, of wine, bottle or two of wine, it, the stories get real good then. Well, there have always been storytellers in Labo County. Um, cowboys are going to tell stories. They're going to tell stories around the campfire. Um, they're going to tell stories on each other. And it's not just cowboys, but it just, it's just South Texas tradition. 
that people tell stories. But whatever the route, Live Oak County not only birthed, but proudly shaped one of the great poet laureates of the American West, J. Frank Doby. J. Frank Doby was born on a ranch um, in South Live Oak County in the Legardo area, and his mother was big on education. They had books, Ivanhoe, they had all, Treasure Island, they had all kinds of books when growing up, and he just was one of those voracious readers. He loved learning. One thing he, he discovered was that those stories, the folklore, was dying out. And so he kind of made it a personal mission to collect those stories. And he sat around many a campfire and listened and recorded the stories. And I, I, I'm a proponent that if it weren't for him, the folklore of Texas and the Southwest might not have been preserved. This is a sentiment that Doby biographer Stephen David readily agrees with. So J. Frank Doby was the guy who rescued Texas's social history and turned it into literature. He saved the stories of Texas. He became the first Texas writer to achieve any kind of recognition. So he basically invented Texas literature, became a big folk hero because he told the stories of our state. He promoted African-American storytellers, Mexican-American storytellers. And he really became, during his life, a beacon, a beacon for intellectual freedom, for human rights. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Honor for all of his courageous uh, battles uh, against censorship for civil rights. And his writing was of his time, but so far ahead of his time, too, because he was writing these really visionary things about the environment and our relationship with nature that we're just now beginning to catch on to as a society. So he was a great example of one of the best kinds of Texans you can imagine. Born in 1888, Doby was laid to rest in the Texas State Cemetery in 1964 following a lifetime of plaudits and accomplishment. But while buildings at UT are titled in his honor, and his likeness can be found in a bronze statue outside Austin's Barton Springs, his name today is sometimes met with critical derision, and even worse, blank stares which is something accomplished author Mark Busby readily acknowledges. You know, when I was an undergraduate, uh, Dobie was very well known and his books were all over the place. Now, very few students have ever heard of J. Frank Dobie. Uh, there are plenty of people who have negative things to say about Dobie, even his, about his writing. He, he tended sometimes to sort of slip into purple prose and just overdo it. Um, but uh, he was a great influence. He was on the radio every week and almost everybody knew who he was. And that's the irony is that now almost nobody knows. You used to, you could go into almost any Texas bookstore and you would see a lot of Dobie's books, but he's really, uh, his, his reputation is just diminished. And it's partially because of the subject matter. And uh, it just, it, it, it's a, an older kind of world. Well, part of it is that Dobie is from an older rural tradition, and that hasn't worn well as Texas has become a more urban, cosmopolitan state. The thing is, there's so much that's timeless about his work. He tells the stories of, of people in Texas, and those, those are enduring forever. So, Seeking to remind people of this and reverse this tide of opinion, in 2011, Mary Margaret and noted writer and Dobie aficionado William Jack Sibley hatched an idea to stage an annual event honoring the legacy of this county's native son. Mary Margaret came to, well, she asked me 10 years ago if I would emcee 
uh, one of the shows at Storyfest in George West, which is now defunct. So I went down and did it and had a great time. And as I was leaving, I said, you know, you're missing the ball here because probably one of the most famous storytellers in Texas, in the Southwest, is from right here, you know, in Live Oak County, uh, J. Frank Dobie. And she said, she thought about it for a minute, and she said, look, if you'll help me, we'll, we'll do this. We'll do it next year. And I said, okay. So that was how this began, and we're right off the freeway. And we have a literary event in the middle of nowhere with the best writers in Texas coming every year. This is our 10th year. Who says this is going to work? I mean, who gives you permission to do this? Nobody. You just do it. You roll the dice and see what happens. And here we are. I mean, it, it just it's grown. It's blossomed. It's, it's become this thing. I mean, the New York Times wrote about us a couple of years ago. Uh, it, it's extraordinary. Having served as a contributing editor to Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine, authored two novels and a dozen screenplays, Bill's lists of accomplishments are dizzying. But South Texas remains home, and sitting in a rocker on the rickety front porch of Oakville's Hinton Homestead, he tells me how they came to settle on a name for this celebration, now hailed as the best little literary event in Texas. So, dichos is Spanish for sayings. Like, I have a saying for you. And so, Dobie was famous for Dobieisms, you know, Dobie... Dobie's sayings, and it had a nice ring to it. Is it, per, is it the best we could have done grammatically? I don't know, but it works. It's catchy. Dobie's, Dobie Dichos. I wish I could say I remember how I learned of Dobie Dichos. It's by no means famous like South by Southwest, but I do know the second I heard of it, I wanted to go. While Dobie is certainly a name I knew growing up, and my dad remains a big fan, my experience with his work remains limited to a few short stories and passages I've read here and there, but the thought of gathering in this teeny hamlet, far from the city, to hear great writers share his work outdoors over a chilly dinner sounded too intoxicating to miss. And now, a decade into its run, it's an experience that continues to wow Mary Margaret. It's just, it's an awesome, it, it is a unique event. There is not another event like this. It's literary, it's Texas themed, Texas everything. We, we serve a meal of chili, that is the Texas state dish. We serve pan de campo, that's the Texas state bread. We serve dessert, miniature pecan pie, that's the Texas state dessert. We, serve, we um, have Texas brewed beer and we have water. People bring their own lawn chairs, bag chairs. They set them up wherever they want to on the lawn. When the sun goes down here, you can, you can see the sun setting to the west over here toward the interstate, but you don't, when, when, when you're at, Do, J, at, at Dobie Dicho's and that sun goes down, you don't even know that interstate is right there because we are right on the access road. You don't hear it. You don't hear all, it's just like, it's, it's, it's just this magic takes place. And that first night, I think I just kind of stopped and kind of looked around and thought, oh my gosh, and you could feel it in the air. I've had people tell me from that first night, they felt like J. Frank Doby's spirit was here among us. Magic is the best word to describe this experience. As dusk hits, 
The grounds of Oakville become bathed in an amber glow that's complemented by a burning fire pit in the square's center. Guests begin filtering through to claim spaces in view of the stage, which has been built on the bed of a vintage rusted Ford. A large black and white portrait of Dobie rests prominently at its base. Naked bulbs shimmer above, and singing cowboy Lee Haley steps up to play as volunteers dish out the chili John Ed's graciously prepared. I grab a bowl and beer, settle in a chair, and kick back as a fleet of Texas's finest take the stage. Primero que nada, buenas noches. Good evening, everyone. I want to acknowledge the spirits of this place that is Live Oak. It's an incredible space. All of our ancestors who first inhabited this land, I ask permission as I present this. And of course, I thank Bill for the invitation, Mary Margaret for all the hard work that goes into doing this, the Davilas for the space, and all of those of you who attended, because without you, we wouldn't be here, right? So, muchas gracias. Norma Cantu, president of the American Folklore Society, reads an imaginary letter she penned to Dobie. Eldrina Dumas, a daughter of the Laguna, Tewa, and Hopi tribes, traveled over eight hours from Canyon to perform a retelling of the mystery of the Palo Duro. Stephen Harden spoke of the complicated friendship Dobie shared with Walter Prescott Webb, and Mark Busby examined the parallels between Dobie and McMurtry. But the evening standout for me was Donna Ingham, a slender 80-something with neatly cropped gray hair, her presence is at once gentle and commanding. And as she takes to the podium to tell the legend of Sancho's return without a single written note, the assembled crowd becomes slowly hypnotized. So I thought I'd finish with a story from the Longhorns, somewhat abridged, one of my favorites, called Sancho's Return. It's a story about a rancher named Kerr who had a ranch down in South Texas. He was one day out riding. It was late in the winter, 1877. And he came across a little scrawny black and white bull calf. It was mud splattered, too weak to, to rise, to stand. It's a wonder the coyotes hadn't gotten to it already. Mr. Kerr, lifted that calf up on his saddle, across his saddle in front of him, took it home, turned it over to his wife, Maria. She'd know what to do with this little orphan, which, of course, in cowboy lingo would be a doggie. She had, she had raised many of them in the past. She first got some milk down him, and then she washed all that mud off with some warm water. They finally got an old mama cow that had a calf of her own to adopt the little newcomer to feed. Now, Maria didn't have any children, and she took a special liking to this little orphan. She named him Sancho, and she treated him like a pet. And Sancho had a, had a special liking for Maria, too, in part because she gave him handouts First, the shucks that she used to put around her tamales to hold them together. Then finally, she just gave him the whole tamale. Peppered as they were with those hot peppers seasoned up. And he liked them. In fact, he developed such a taste 
for hot peppers, that he would go browsing around under the brush and under the trees there along Esperanza Creek looking for those red wild chili pekins that most of the cattle wouldn't eat. But Sancho, he, he got addicted to them. Now by the time he was a yearling, he had established a routine. He would, uh, well, if he couldn't get a handout of the tamales, or if he wasn't busy looking for red hot peppers in the summertime anyway, he'd, he'd graze on the grass and the mesquite beans. But then every night, he would bed himself down under one special mesquite tree up close to the ranch pens. And when he was a three-year-old, and that would have been in 1880, that's when Maria lost her pet. It was inevitable. Mr. Kerr sold Sancho and a bunch of other steers to the Shiner brothers, who were putting together three herds to deliver to a ranch in Wyoming. There were going to be 2,500 in each of those herds. Sancho was branded with 7Z. That was his road brand, and he was put in the first herd going north. Well, the first night out, he didn't bed down with the other cattle. No, he stayed on his feet, and he kept looking back, maybe thinking about his mesquite tree on the Kerr place, and well, maybe hankering for an evening tamale. The next morning, when the herd moved out, he stayed at the back. And he kept stopping every little bit and looking back. Well, the cowboys noticed that, and they took, they passed the word, you better keep an eye on that, that paint steer in the, in the back there. And on the second night, one of the cowboys flipped a, a, a loop over his long horns and staked him to a bush, and that helped for a while. But then he saw an opportunity to duck through some brush and head home as the herd had reached up around the Lano River, and he headed south. But the second Shiner herd was coming behind, and one of the point men saw this big paint steer, saw that 7Z brand on his left side, gathered him up, put him in that second herd, and headed him north again. But then just north of the Colorado River, there was a little run. It wasn't quite a stampede, but there was enough confusion that again, Sancho saw his chance to duck back and head home. But not for long, because the third Shiner herd was coming along, and they gathered him up and headed him north again. Well, by this time, everybody on the trail, every cowboy on the trail knew him. and. He never, he never resisted when they would put the loop over his horns and stake him out. He was, he was regarded as one of the gentlest, most docile steers in the herd. As a matter of fact, they would rope him, take him to the front any time they were going to cross high water, if they had to ford some high water, because he would plunge right in, and the other cattle would follow him. But the minute they released him, back he went to the drag. Well, they would make 10 or 12 miles a day, 
and they were following the grass, of course, and they, they, they crossed 500 miles of Texas. They crossed the no man's land north of the Red River, went through Kansas into Nebraska, and finally reached their home in Wyoming. Well, it was September when they got there. Sancho didn't like it much. And he was thinking maybe that it was about time for those chili pequeens to be getting ripe down on Esperanza Creek. But nevertheless, he was branded with the CR, the range brand for this particular ranch. And the Shiner Brothers cowboys, they headed home and they left Sancho there. It was the next spring that one of the cowboys was out riding with Joe Shiner. They were gathering up cattle to make another drive north, and this cowboy looked over by the Kerr cabin, and he, and he saw something that made him just stop and rub his eyes. And he looked over at Joe Shiner, and he said, Do you see what I see? And Shiner said, Yes. But before I say, I need to check the brand. Well, sure enough, they rode on over. And the cowboy said, you can hang me for a horse thief. It, if it wasn't that Sancho paint steer, the 7Z Road brand, the CR Range brand, standing out on his side just as big as boxcar letters. Well, they rode over until they found Mr. Kerr, and then they heard the story. Yes, sir, Kerr said. Old Sancho come in about six weeks ago. His hooves were worn mighty down to the hair, but he wasn't lame. And Maria nearly went out of her senses. When she saw him, she hugged him. She cried. And then she started feeding him hot tamales. She's made a batch of them nearly every day since. Well, he had taken up his old routine, Sancho had, coming up to that mesquite tree every night and bedding down there close to the ranch gate, Maria said. And Mr. Shiner could see that she was nervous about losing her pet again. But he said, any steer that loves his home enough to walk all the way back from Wyoming, 2,000 miles? I'm not gonna run him off again. So as far as we know, old Sancho stayed right there on Esperanza Creek, feeding on tamales when he could get them and looking for the Mexican hot peppers when they were in season, fattening up on the prairie grass and the mesquite beans until he died a natu of natural causes. And he remains now one of the truly legendary walking longhorns. When I spoke with Bill Sibley at the start of this evening, we swapped stories about New York, and he jokingly told me he still thinks of himself as bi-Yankee. What I love about Texas... I really love, he said, but I'm not so crazy about Texas, I'm not so crazy about. I relate to this. 
But sitting here taking in this extraordinary story under the stars and pleasant cool of a fall breeze, I feel the love. For me, this evening is a balm. See, Doby Dichos is held on the first Friday in November, and you might recall last November marked a particularly tense political moment. Being a lone visitor, I had little desire to discuss the returns coming in from Georgia and Pennsylvania, but had to ask a few of those I'd met what wisdom Doby might impart on us if he could see where we are today. That's, that's a big question. You know, Doby, as I've said, was always a fighter for human rights, civil rights, intellectual freedom. Doby believed that the arc of the universe bends towards justice. One of the things he said is he believes that Garden of Eden perfection lies further ahead rather than way back yonder in the old past. So he would see that we are on a road of evolution as humans. And the question is, if we can get ahead of our own doom, so by, by evolving into being civilized enough to be able to live in the world. I think he would tell us all to be safe, like we're all trying to do, to stay healthy and do whatever we need to do to, to stay healthy and stay safe. But at the same time, he recognized the need for social interaction. I'm not saying he wouldn't subscribe to the social distancing, but not to isolate yourself. As so many people have, for one reason or another during this time and a lot of people have are having emotional issues about that and I think he would be one of those proponents that said yeah you need to you need that social interaction but just be smart about it that's that's my take on on what he might think but he always spoke of a liberated mind to have your you know to be educated to read and to open your mind up and I think he would say the very same thing now. Uh, even though he's been dead since 1964, I think he'd be the same way. Indeed, Doby famously said, I have come to value liberated minds as the supreme good of life on earth. How does one liberate their mind? I can't say I'm an authority on the subject by any means, but I think listening with empathy might be a good place to start. And God knows, that's where stories come into play. On that note, I'll leave you with the words of tonight's musical entertainer, Lee Haley, who tells me that's what folklore like this is all about. Here's the most authentic definition. Folklore is the lore of the folk. Okay, that's basically what it is. Well, I think it's important to, uh, first off, Oh boy, in this day and age especially, it's important to be able to tie the generations together to keep us united. You know, uh, uh, folklore has always done that. You know, um, and when you study folklore, you realize that you've been involved with folklore all your life and never realized it, but then you see how other people do things and you realize there's some cool traditions out there that are outside your realm, but basically it makes them the same human and people and Texans that we all are. You know, uh, that's what I think is the most important thing is tying the generations together and keeping us all united. Where everybody's trying to divide us these days and we need to find ways to keep us all united. United in our differences. That's the way I like to say it. Woo! So many to thank for making this episode happen. 
The first being the force of nature that is Mary Margaret Campbell for welcoming me and helping me feel right at home in Live Oak County. I chatted with her over the phone recently and was excited to learn that this year's bill will feature the amazing Ken Roberts, whom you might remember from our first episode of this show. Other participants include noted author W.F. Strong, storytellers Bernadette Nason, Michaela Mendez, and Tim Tingle, whose collection of Texas ghost stories I proudly own. The festivities will be taking place on November 5th, and to buy your tickets, visit dobidichos.com. In addition to the many great minds I had the pleasure of speaking with, I also must thank John Ed James, who generously put me up at his ranch and fed and welcomed me with amazing hospitality. We had a great time and hope to find a way to repay the favor one of these days. Also, if you love Donna Ingham's performance of Sancho's Return, like I did, and are curious to learn more, I've included a link to her site, DonnaIngham.com, in the show notes. I also thank you for listening, and if you've enjoyed what you've heard and haven't already, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. It helps us grow and guarantees you will never miss an episode. As always, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, it would mean a great deal if you could take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more info, please find us on Instagram or visit vanishingpostcards.com where we'd love to hear from you if you have any stories you care to repeat or know of any places we should consider visiting. Our theme music was written and performed by Max Krauss and Emily Young. I'm Evan Stern, and hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards. Postcards.